Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. I thought I'd begin today a series, and it may not be immediately sequential series, on cancer relative to keto. It's a very broad issue, and I don't want to pretend I'm going to set up a simple answer, like just do keto and cancer's fine. I've heard that a lot, and that's in part what um, motivates me to have this topic is to go into some of the details and saying, you know, it, it is a big deal. If anybody wants to do some little research, um, seek out Tom Siegfried. Certainly go back and listen to the two or three part episode I did with interviewing him. And then the sequels, the prequels actually, that I did about his work prior to talking with him. So I think you really need to know the larger context. And uh, what I've learned from patient care of 16 years and the, in essence, umpteen thousands of patients that I've talked with one-on-one is that you give a set of instructions, however simple you think they are as a physician, the patient is going to trim it down to what they feel they're willing to do and is the most direct route. And so they may actually totally obliterate some important points that you try to get across. Usually the instructions are not that complicated, by the way. So we're not asking him to run around the house and climb cliffs or, you know, a food prep that is extraordinary or something like that. We're basically laying out a viable way to do life for the next unit of time before we meet again. That's pretty much how a practice goes. This is as a naturopathic doctor. And so with that, you tailor in your advice, now I'm pretending you are the naturopathic doctor, you are the physician, and um, you tailor in your advice into whatever other doctors are seeing. So more than likely, they're seeing two or three other doctors, all what we would say allopaths or MDs. So you probably have somebody who's a rheumatologist giving them certain medications, somebody who might be a cardiologist, somebody who might be a, uh, oh, they're OBGYN or they're GYN anyway. And so there's a lot that you sort of have to sort of take in on your intake just on terms of what their life is about right now. Then, of course, you do the environmental intake. You know, where are they living? How are they living? Then you do the dietary. You know, that is required. We've gone over this before. I know that is required information. What is you actually eating? Seven-day diet diary. Everything that you eat, please. And then you have the history of their past blood work. So that's the beginning 
That's the context. That's, that, that's me trying to say, all right, I need to know the context of your life before I tell you basic things to do. So that's the antithesis, in essence, of what a person really wants. A person comes to you and wants one simple pill, ideally, that they can take that will correct the issues they have in their life, usually around pain, literally pain points. So can you make them better? Well, for, for well over a decade, I did a lot of acupuncture and I did a lot of Chinese herbal medicine. And so uh, I really loved that part of the world. It was much more personal. You know, you didn't give people the same sort of set of points. You didn't uh, treat the same points. You didn't do the same point uh, insertion of needles in the same way in various different patients. That's what, that's what a learned, a learned or learning um, acupuncturist would do. They would know these technique differences. And when it came down to Chinese herbal medicine, which were mostly uh, plants that had been powdered and dehydrated and already decocted, um, and then you'd be mis- mixing these together as a formula. That took a lot of time, uh, but it was wonderful that it worked and uh, usually worked without side effects as you narrow down the stage that the patient was in as well as well, who that patient was. So you had to assess them in many ways. And so that is not done in allopathic medicine. It's like, well, here's this medicine. You go in and you get your blood work done, right? Oh, your cholesterol's high. You need to be on a statin. That's not a very complicated conversation to have, correct? And then uh, not only that, now that most of the population is somewhat educated on the downside of statins, they'll say, well, why is that? Isn't that a problem? Won't there be some problems with the statins that I won't like? I mean, that's about as thick of a conversation that gets, and that's really pretty superficial. You're asking questions on the medication because now statins are pretty much so well known. But take when I had colitis and ulcerated colitis, uh, Crohn's and ulcerated colitis, it's like, you know, there was no, let's talk about the medication. No, you, t- you have to be on this on the rest of your life, kid. Not delivered in quite that sort of tones, but no, this is something you're going to have to be on the rest of your life. And yes, um, you will have to give yourself shots a couple times a week. And yes, you'll have to be on uh, these two or three oral medications as well. I'm, I'm sorry, but this is the situation you're in. Can you imagine that? That's as far as it goes. You know, and it's like, so if you don't agree with that, who are you going to turn to? Um, well, ideally, there's some n- other practitioners in the environment that your environment, that person's environment, that will be able to help them out. But usually the question is, there isn't. There isn't a backup. Suddenly this person's out in the street by themselves, figuratively speaking, about how do I do this? What is it that I should do? Oh, so why I did that sort of circuitous little background is because everybody's in a different spot. And if we're talking about cancer, there's different kinds of cancers, there's different ages of the people, there's different genders of the people. And so these are things that have to be taken into into account. So when we march forward and go, well, my cancer treatment is, you know, when we talk about chemo, that is one treatment for all these people. I mean, if you've ever gone into a chemo room, they're sitting around in chairs and getting their IVs is, or sometimes they take it orally at home. You know, there are, there are different people, you know, in different situations and their causes for the cancer were different causes. Isn't that relevant? Not really in that context. They don't want to go there. It's not what they do. And some people actually do benefit from chemotherapy. So you can't say it's wrong. It's just not many. 
and it depends on the cancer and it, you know, okay, we got that. I hope you are getting this vibe that I'm putting across. So as I'm going to present this idea, this series of podcasts of what would one do if they had cancers, I'm not going to break down all the cancers. It's too big. It's that would come back on a question. So if you have various cancers, you can ask me those questions and then we'll get specific, but otherwise that would be a huge list. And we're going to talk about the application of keto. And it's not just keto. It's not like you go to a keto cancer doc. You walk in the door and you go, doc, I have prostate cancer. What do I do? Oh, here's how you do on the ketogenic diet. Boom. No, it's, um, I don't think anybody would say that, by the way. The, the context is, well, let me see your labs. Let me see your blood work. Give me your data. What's What's going on in your life? And maybe... And there's not really much information, by the way, on prostate cancer and keto. It's very vague. It's not as black and white as, let's say, um, certain brain cancers and certain neurological situations that seem to benefit very, very well and quickly. So uh, each is different. So I'm going to go into what I would do if I were Dr. Carl Goldcamp, who had cancer. And by the way, I just was diagnosed with basal cell carcinoma in the middle of my back. And you go, where'd that come from? Well, I, we lived five years in the Cape just a little while ago, but I have a feeling that it came from a long time ago when I worked, uh, for about, uh, three or four years on the equator in Indonesia, in the oil field, we were under a lot of sun to the point that I described the sun as shards of glass that just strifed through you on a daily basis. So I think that's where that came from. So that will have to be carved out, as they say, or um, they don't say carved out. They say there's another word. So uh, that will have to be taken care of. So we all have cancer in our environment, one type or another. Some, and basal cell carcinoma is the most common common type of skin cancer, by the way. It's not melanoma, and it's certainly not squamous, and then you can go on from there. So we're going to talk from this general level going forward what I would do and then what I would prescribe in terms of when patients come in, this is what they have to have in place to work with me or to have worked with me. It just has to be that way. It's not on a per conversation basis. Because if you're going to, the problem about being a physician and having a, cancer, a conversation about cancer, there's an implied liability. And that's why every physician has liability insurance. And depending on the nature of your specialty, it could be very expensive or maybe not that expensive at all. As a naturopath, it was uh, $10,000 going on $20,000 a year. It's just ridiculous. Just ridiculous. Um, if you are an oncologist, it's much more expensive. If you are a um, OBGYN, obstetrician, it's very expensive. So that's that's one of the big deterrents in going into medicine is because these added costs that you have to put up with and the very little reimbursement you get from insurance companies. Whereas people think you make a lot of money, at least they did with me. I wasn't that other kind of doctor. So anyway, setting up the structure of how an intelligent person would go in and saying, all right, I'm interested in understanding how keto applies to my situation and I've been diagnosed with cancer X, be it breast cancer or bone cancer or brain cancer and so on and so forth. You're going to have to do your own research. 
You know, uh, the doctor being me, so to say, in that situation, is not going to be your librarian and giving you every new study. They, that's certainly already been done. I'll pull it out of a folder and have the front desk get a copy for you. That kind of thing. Of course, now everything's online. Um, and so there's a part of you're going to have to jump in and educate yourself and be part of this. It's a collaboration very clearly. It's not you come in and, and let the the uh, IV nurse give you your uh, chemotherapy for the day and have you nod off. No, we're not going to be doing that. That's not that this is. This is you're participating and I'm participating and let's take care of this. Okay, we clearly are going to look at diet. So we're going to explain why keto might have a relevance here for your cancer. Maybe cancer in general, but it does not respond to all cancers as we know right now. And there's not a lot of information currently available on various cancers relative to a human, human cancers and their treatment. So it is basically nothing at all. So when they talk about keto, it's usually something at a, a very uh, genetic, genetic or molecular level that they've discovered in mice or rats or whatever, but it's not in humans. And so the step into human work is pretty much that risk is pretty much borne by the patient. You know, it's because there's not a lot of documentation. So again, I refer you to the um, interview I did with Dr. Siegfried because there was a case that had great outcomes and then the person was did so great, you know, disappeared for a year, came back and didn't do well at all. So there's a lot of variables. We can't pretend that it's straight up, hey, this is what it's what's going to happen. However, let's say if I had... I'm not, I have no particular plans to change anything with the basal cell carcinoma. But if I had, certainly if I had a kind of a brain cancer, uh, and we'll leave it at that, that I would certainly find an oncologist. I would, one that focused in that, um, any sort of cerebral tumors and so on. And I would take it upon myself by notifying the doctor I was working with that, I had planned to do a ketogenic diet, and what does that mean? That means very low carbs and potentially high fats or not high fats, but very low carbs. And I would track that, so the tools that I would use would certainly be a glucometer. It would also be a CGM, and I would try to convey to this physician that he he or she could help me get a prescription to the uh, Freestyle Libra, or if you wanted to, you could go up to a Dexcom. I think it would be quite relevant. But anyways, if they could help you get the prescription for that so you can now get your cartridges and go on and start seeing your glucose levels throughout the day. That's a con- it's just a, such a great education. You need to have that. So this is now a required piece of, in essence, your cancer treatment. Just got to have it. You would also have a ketometer. So we use KetoMojo, of course, and it's both a ketometer and, and glucometer. So you can say, well, wait a minute, it's a, it's a little bit of a um, redundancy for the CGM. It is, um, but who cares? Better have redundancy than not at all. But the, the the ketones, when you do your ketones and your glucose, you're going to be able to calculate your, excuse me, your GKI, which is your glucose ketone index. And your glucose ketone index was something that was basically invented by Tom, Dr. Siegfried. And uh, he has a therapeutic range, or he, I uh, used to have a therapeutic range of have that be within two 
Ideally, if you're in cancer, if you really have a pretty serious level of cancer, then you want to narrow that range, which means you're mostly burning ketones. Uh, there's always glucose in your blood because parts of your brain and other parts of your body need a little glucose, but you're predominantly a, a ketone creator and a ketone burner. You're burning fat. And that has to be the way it is. And that would be very important. So let me back up and also say, what is the concept here? Again, I don't want to go into the whole uh, many hours we were talking um, with Dr. Siegfried, but you are trying to suffocate the cancer in essence. So suffocate speaks to air. I'm using that incorrectly, but it's a great visual. Suffocate the cancer by making sure the preferred fuel for cancer, which is glucose, um, is hard to get for the cancer. So if we could actually have a switch and turn off all glucose, except for a small little stream for that parts of your brain that needs to need it, that, um, that would be great. That would be ideal. And so what would happen is your cancer, this is the theory it has been borne out in enough situations, but then, you know, they're, they're not doing this in the United States. They're doing it in, uh, you know, Turkey and Egypt and Hungary for Hungary's, um, really has a nice center for this. We're doing this. So it's not here. It's basically what due to politics, due to a lot of things, it's just not being done here. Okay. So now you're setting yourself up through the ketogenic diet, dropping the carbs. I would say, feel free to go to almost no carbs. I don't do carbs, but I do a pretty high protein and let me talk about protein. So protein, you can't just, if you have cancer, you can't do what I'm doing, given what we know so far, because cancer slowly does convert, can convert into glucose called gluconeogenesis. However, it doesn't do it as conveniently, as quickly, or as yeah, or as efficiently as glucose does, or as uh, carb, carbohydrates do. Carbohydrates get broken down directly into glucose and another kind of um, monosaccharide. That could be maltose, could be galactose, you name it, okay? But there's glucose in there, and so glucose is very quickly. One step, and it's off to your bloodstream to feed whoever that needs the glucose. Okay, so you're trying to really reduce the ability of your body to have access to glucose, right? So the only thing you can, can control is what you eat, and that is exogenous, in essence, exogenous um, glucose, so that you can control. If you didn't eat another carb for the next 30 or 40 days or years, well, you could still get by because your protein and your body and even some of your fats, by the way, will be converted. It can break things down and get then, you know, it's, it's kind of like a chop shop. It, all the pieces get broken down. It can be reassembled into glucose. It's a much slower process as you can possibly guess, uh, but it does happen that way. So uh, same as is true with with epilepsy. You know, they would reduce the amount of protein with uh, pediatric epileptics because they didn't want the end product of glucose to be available to those nerve cells. That seemed to be the thing that was setting them off. So too is that the case with cancer. It's the cancer cells are saying, can we not do this? Can we like not have glucose available? So there's that. So that's the cut and dry picture cut off the glucose as much as possible, have high fats, who are now the fat obviously is the precursors, if you will, that's the substance, that's the fuel for creating ketones and then your body using ketones to fuel 
yourself. And then the protein, of course, you need that for the structure and enzymes and so on and so forth. But you just can't have too much uh, protein. So in order to get started with cancer, this is not for everybody, the, the door you have to go through is really a brief fast, ideally a three-day fast, a three-day water fast. And you could have things like coffee or tea and so on and so forth. But ideally, if you can just do three days of drinking as much water as you want, your body is going to go kind of cold turkey. You're, com- you're cutting off your glucose, obviously, your exogenous glucose. And you're now totally dependent on your body making whatever glucose it needs by breaking down the fat you have, right? That's pretty straightforward. It's, well, it's, you're going to get ketones. It's going to quickly become the preferred fuel. But you're also going to get some glucose there too. But you have to go through cold turkey from glucose as a fuel into ketones. And and that's uncomfortable. You know, it is uncomfortable. Even Dr. Seifer is saying, I don't know if he's made it through a three-day fast. Maybe he has now. But you'll see this on your your CGM, your continual glucose monitor is pretty fascinating. You'll see your ketone numbers uh, start to rise. You'll see your GKI because there's you get to calculate that. In the Keto Mojo, it calculates it for you, and you can go online and calculate it, or you can do it manual if you want to. But you'll see that your GKI will will rise from you know ten to five to two to eventually to one. So you're in a good place, and it's going to be hard-earned. So those first three days will be difficult. Usually the sleep is, is hard for a first day or two, and then it breaks, and you feel okay. It's almost like you could continue fasting for a week or two. That's not necessary. But if we're looking at using a ketogenic diet as a serious cancer therapeutic, then it's a hypocaloric, a low, very low-calorie ketogenic diet. What does that mean? That means in the neighborhood of, and it can be calculated on a per person basis, but it's in the neighborhood of 600 calories a day. That's usually about a third of what the average person needs. And in those calories, obviously is not going to be carbs. It's going to be protein and then fat. Enough protein so you're not breaking down your protein for glucose. And so it's primarily a fat diet. It's call it 500 calories of fat, and I'm making it up because you have to tweak it to find out what actual foods are you going to have. But that's how reduced it is. And then you would continue at that level. So obviously, you're going to be losing some weight. A normal person would certainly be losing some weight. You will continue for that for, if you could, a week or so. So that's going to be setting yourself up. Other people have, I mean, it really depends on how driven you are to change the course of your metabolism. I mean, that's a Pure and simple is what you're after. You're at a, after a metabolic change from glucose as a fuel to ketones as a fuel. And you can do that by starving or fasting, which is really two words of the same thing. Starving is going fasting too long. But some people have fasted for a week or two weeks on a water-only fast. They have some coffee in there if they want, and, but other things that are not going to be calorically of any value. So when you do that, you know that turning off the glucose pump Um, as much as possible, some situations, some immune situations change dramatically. Absolutely. You know, um, there's stories, well, there's, there's reports, don't say there's stories, anecdotal, but there are reports, testimonies, if you will, 
ovarian cancer, various cancers that clear up. Certainly my gut was one of them. My gut wasn't a cancer, but it was highly inflamed, extremely high inflammatory markers. So you can shut that process down. So the question then becomes, you know, first step is getting there. And you can do it softly, or you can do it aggressively. That's up to you, but you need to work with somebody while you're doing it. And in my view, you need to have um, these monitors, that's the CGM, your ketometer, and um, certainly your weight would help. And ideally, before you got started, you had a whole battery of blood work done that I call a metabolic panel. So we know where you're starting from. And then you continue. And then at some point later on, you know, now you can gradually graduate up to a, what they call a basal metabolic uh, rate of calories. That is, you're now breaking even maybe, but it's always good to stay somewhat hypocaloric. If you are so thin, you have no fat to lose, then that's a bit of a question. That's a bit, uh, uh, you know, you obviously can't go very low on your calories at some point, but you get the point. We're going without, you're getting into ketosis, you're creating that metabolic change, and you really are sticking to it. If one is, well, la-di-da, you know, I sort of have, um, you know, there's different labels of cancer, by the way. I just have stage one of naming your cancer, and, well, yeah, I'm sort of bothered, but I'm really not going to spend a lot of attention on it, because if I worry too much about it, it's just going to make it worse. Well, and part of that statement is true, for sure, but not to pay attention, you know, this is really important um, to lock this down and to have your data, you know, to track your macros and your food that you're eating, to track your ketones, uh, your glucose or your CGM and through individual finger pricks so you can calculate your your um, GKI. If you did that, and of course your weight, if you did that as a bare minimum for a while, that would be helpful information for any physician to see. So now you got how that goes forward. Can't imagine there's any questions on that. So what I do personally, and the, the tests that I have come to really like to look at, I mean, I, I, you know, the person has to come in, they have to fill out, you know, where they've lived and where they've worked. Had they been an oil-filled worker for their whole life? Well, then I certainly would expect to a high exposure to petrochemicals, right? Pretty straightforward. Had they, did they have a lot of new rugs in their house in, in the last five or 10 years? Well, they've had a lot of off-gassing of that. That would be, some of those are actually neurotoxins. And so you need to know those things. Um, I used to do a lot of heavy metals chelation until uh, it was pulled from our uh, scope of practice in Connecticut. But so for the better part of 10 or 12 years, we did a lot of heavy metal chelation. And that was technical. Uh, we did uh, provoked urine tests to find out what their loads were. And then we would do it intermittently along the way to sort of see how we were doing. That same sort of way of... Uh, of doing intermittent testing is important to find out how we're doing. It's not to overemphasize, oh my gosh, you have cancer, we really need to take care of you. No, but it's need to have some data. Are we doing better? Are you feeling better? And these things need to be followed up on. Again, it obviously depends on the seriousness of the, the situation with that person and how willing they are to be committed to this particular path of treatment. What I liked about working with cancer patients is that they were very dedicated by the time they showed up to my door, they listened, they asked questions, they did their homework, and they were type A students all the time. And they got very informed about their particular cancer. So they end up being a 
an oncologist of a sort. But the other labs that I like to do is um, I do the hormone panel. I think that's very helpful, uh, certainly with women and well, men too, but mostly it's with women and how are they metabolizing their estrogen. That's a big deal. I do like to look at their their genome. Do I look at every possible thing? No. Uh, there's another a couple companies that I use out there. N- none of them are my favorite. I think they all are really supplement companies in disguise. And so they all have their agenda. But some do a great way of presenting good information. Others make it seem like every mutation you have, SNP, singular nuclear polymorphism, that you have could be the one that makes it worse for you or better for you. Or I think that's too much of a threat hanging over somebody's life. Let's loosen up. But there are clusters, as I've talked about before, there are clusters of SNPs that need to be looked at. They need to be looked at and, and in, in light of the situation, in light of your other blood work. So what else do I do? And then I do the intracellular uh, spectrocell uh, nutrient level. I think that will um, light up where your nutrient deficiencies are. So if you have egregious nutrient deficiencies that do not just show up in serum, that would be the test I do. So I put those together and with the, the big metabolic blood work panel up front. And so that's how I box you in to sort of say, I think I understand this person as well as I understand where they live, where their life was, what I can suspect. I no longer do uh, heavy metal evaluation. I used to, and there was a number of uh, cancer patients that came in high in heavy metal, especially after they started with chemotherapy with uh, cisplatinum, is a heavy metal would come up, and that was secondary to their uh, chemotherapy, meaning caused from the chemotherapy. So that's the kind of degree of seriousness. When people say, oh, Carl or Dr. Goldcamp, could you do a series on cancer and chemo? I'm going to spell it out like this is some serious stuff, and you need to be committed. This isn't just hey, I'm going to drop my carbs and and um, be cancer-free in a couple of months. Maybe that would work for you. By the way, I'm not going to say that won't work for you. I'm going to say that for some people, if they are committed to that whole fasting approach up front, maybe fasting for a week or two, um, and then they start bringing in the food at a very low calorie in a very ketogenic way, that's not a bad thing to do. But they need to have some help in the area. They need to sort of do that not on their own, And um, there has been some tremendous reports. There are not a lot of of studies. I don't think there's really any studies, quote unquote, meaning there's a small population of people that have done this together and this is the results. Those are non-existent from my understanding. Let me go back and give you a little idea of, you know, my brother died of multimyeloma and it took about nine years for that to happen. And that was from pretty much, oh, he died in 2012. And so... It's about from uh, 2004 to 2012. Uh, it was tough, but to sort of see from onset to gradually getting worse and and uh, people go fast and they go slow. He went slow, which is nice, and um, but it never ends up well. It's never, uh, and he died at 60, he died at about 65, 66 in there someplace. Um, my only brother. But so what did we do then? I knew nothing about the ketogenic diet then. I I didn't do, I'm not even quite sure if I knew. Yeah, I did do spectrocell. He did a lot of spectrocell tests. We actually did do some uh, heavy metal um, evaluations on him. We certainly did a lot of blood work. 
and uh, we were pretty limited to what we could do. He was working, you know, for multi-myeloma, they have to be on medications that, for one, uh, create new red blood cells. It's called Procrit. It's usually erythropoietin, which is similar to what your kidneys kick off to keep your red blood cells in production. But it gets complicated. There's no one thing you can boost because multiple myeloma is the hollowing out of your bones for the most part. And it's the hollowing out of your bones because the, um, the I don't know if you know this, but in your bone marrow is where your red blood cells are made and they obviously need to come out of the bones and your red blood cells, right? And into your circulation. Well, uh, with multiple myeloma, you get what they call these punched out legions and uh, the exit holes are blocked. And so you end up having anemia and then you're having a, a problem with being able to create red blood cells. So, so it's really the symptoms that people feel most is initially about being tired because they don't have, they have fewer and fewer red blood cells. And after that, it's about bone pain. And uh, it goes from there, as you can imagine. So what would we do? We certainly focus on his diet a lot. What would I do differently? Well, there are there are no studies out there. Multiple myeloma and the ketogenic diet or that hasn't even that's on somebody's fantasy list. So you'd still I'd still be on my own. Say, hey, here's a great idea, John. You might really want to uh, look at this, and this is how it works. It would be extreme, and you know, no doctor would have said, gee, this is a great idea. Back then, they said, no, eat all eat all you want. You know, yeah, you need your your body needs the new nutrition, quote unquote, is what they would say. It needs the calories and nutrition for your immune system to be able to fight this. And so that would be their carte blanche of a reason to just have patients eat anything. So they would eat wrong things and they would have high glucose because, heck, they have cancer and they need to eat more to support their immune system. And then it would be just the opposite. So there's a lot of stupidity out there. And uh, nobody's really that interested in going beyond. You know, they have, remember I went back to the li- malpractice, the liability insurance that doctors have to have? Well, you're not going to get a doctor who's an oncologist who's specialized in multi-myeloma to consider all these alternative things because that will come back and be his potential liability. So things don't get better. The standards don't change. Standard of care don't change. New ideas do not come in. And they don't come in because... Um, not that the doctors aren't interested, it's just that it's too much risk for them personally and financially, is what they're talking about, to go on and to say, yeah, that's a great idea, let's do that. So how you have to sell it to your oncologist, who's going to be monitoring you, ideally, is it let's watch my numbers, right? Let's watch my blood work. Let's watch and include him in looking at these other labs that we've already talked about. Uh, he may or may not be interested, he or she may or may not be interested in, in any of that, but at least you've included them in and saying, let's go, if my numbers get better, let me continue doing this. And that's pretty much the conversation you have to have without becoming ostracized by your doctor. You have to make him a collaborator of your situation and and help him care about you, which he does, he or she does. I think I'm just going to start using he for simplicity's sake. So you get that. So again, maybe looking back, it would have been very difficult for me to propose this particular kind of thinking for my brother in that particular situation. There's just there's just not a lot of information on multiple myeloma. They do think it's environmentally induced. Uh, it was it there was a, a spike up in multiple myeloma after 9/11. Those who died in 
um, in New York City, primarily, of all the of all the and all the helpers, by the way, all the helpers being the firefighters and the police force and so on that died subsequent to 9/11, not in 9/11. It was from all the the burning of the toxins and so on that they had to run through to save people. So that's the structure that I think is really important to listen to. And so even if you're far away and you're somehow you're picking this podcast up and you're you're homeschooling or you're in the Australian outback or you're homeschooling in Alaska someplace or far back in Montana or who knows where and you go, you know, it's up to me. It's up to me to get healthier. What do I need to do? Well, I would definitely have heard that part about you got to fast for a little bit up front, water fast, so you have some good quality water around. And then it's hypocaloric. And so you can determine, I'm pretending you're that person far away that is not going to be seeing a doctor because it's too far away. Though there is obviously online help, right? Telemedicine. That you can line up and monitor yourself in these things. You can't go out and do your own blood work. You can, um, that, that's obviously impossible, but you can measure your ketones and your glucose and you can order for yourself or at least ask your tele, telemedicine doc for your uh, Freestyle Libra or, or something more sophisticated like your Dexcom and start paying attention to that variable. That in itself is a big deal. That's really what the ketogenic diet's about. So if you can start pulling down that little line of a graph in your Freestyle Libra and CGM to have it lower so it's in the 60s and 70s, when it's in the fasting, uh, it will drop. You know, you might even get down to the, the 40s. It's, I've gotten down to the 40s. People have gotten down even lower. And uh, back in the 60s, there was a lot of fasting, not a lot, there was some really interesting fasting research done by uh, Dr. George Cahill, who worked for the Joslin Institute in Boston. And um, more things were allowed back then than they are now. And so he had uh, people in the hospital, stayed in the hospital, fasted for 30 days and longer. And in the 30 days, he then even came and gave them insulin, which drops your glucose even further to see what would happen. Well, that wouldn't be allowed anymore because you'd be afraid of death. But um, actually not much happened. Interesting. So your body adapts and it doesn't, it can't be forced to have less than it needs, but it can be, it can be forced or it, it can create the change of you living on ketones. So there you go. So it's something you can do. It is a very big variable. It's a variable. It's still not talked about very much. You hear things like, oh, the fasting mimicking diet by Walter Luongo and uh, that data is strictly on mice, by the way. So as much as it's a neat idea, there is no human evidence of that. Uh, he also, which is interesting, he brought up that fasting with chemotherapy was a benefit in the sense that they had it diminished the side effects of the chemotherapy. And that's a big category because there's different uh, chemotherapeutic agents and there's different with use with different cancers, of course. But nonetheless, the side effects were reduced significantly. The vomiting and the nausea and all that disappeared for many by fasting before uh, th uh, before getting their chemo. So it's a big variable. You need to scope that out. You need to um, really take that part seriously. If you're just going to wing it and you're not even going to uh, 
track your macros, let's say on a chronometer or my fitness pal, whatever your thing is, then why bother? You know, I mean, let's take it seriously, get into tracking, learn all the tedium, and then you won't have to do it for a while, but you'll, we'll have to do it. Do you know what 20 carbs or less is? Do you know what five carbs is? You know, and don't, if you are allowing yourself to have carbs, don't have it all at once. Like, oh, here's my carb allotment for the day. I'm not going to have a cupcake. That's a stupid way of doing it. First of all, you don't do grains and you don't do starches. If you were to do carbs at all, they would be leafy green vegetables. Okay. That's the thing there too. So be smart about how you bring these things in together. So I am going to stop here and I wanted to set the stage about creating the structure for what one would do to create the best situation in a ketogenic diet where you're trying to address cancer to have you heal as best as possible. So it's creating the structure. I hope you pick that up. What is, and I don't want to be so pedantic like I'm, you know, beating you over the head with this, but it has to be put in place. And there are sort of quote unquote rules to do that and be smart, track, get the tools you need. And there's more tools now than there were a year ago that I think are really advantageous. The CGM, you know, the Keto Mojo is a great and really calculate these things and, and keep a tally, keep a spreadsheet on how you're doing. So, you know, it's your life and it's going to be your life in numbers for a while, but not forever, but that's how we get started. So that would be the place about creating the structure. That's the theme of this, creating the structure. Next, I'm going to get back to really get into some of the lab work and I'm going to go over, for some of it's going to be very interesting, for others it's going to be very tedious. Well, I don't need to know about this. I just need to know big picture. Well, we're not going to be doing big picture um, in some of the sequential follow-up podcasts. We're going to get into the labs and labs that most people do not get from their doctor and why they should get from their doctor. So they can go maybe not line by line, but by group by group by group, and why I value these numbers. And what I find about the lab work, the intracellular, the hormonal, the metabolic panel, the genomic evaluation. Okay, so we're going to get into some of that and talk to you then. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to Dr. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview, or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might have been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto, it's not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody, any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when, history and evolution, epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, 
schizophrenia or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also, just for people and losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto, and so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of, at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors. So in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results, and we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered, and I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.